0: Morning, my name is Ian Power. I'm here with Steve Seaborn, the little contractor. Coming up on the Home Discovery Show, we're going to talk about passive houses, and then next week, aggressive houses. Uh, passive houses is something that's taking uh, Europe by—I was going to say storm, but that just wouldn't be right. I want you to stay with us. We have assembled a panel to talk about passive houses, and uh, it's something that's starting to to become interesting to people living in this area. So uh, that's something that you'll want to take part in. Last week, you may recall, we spoke to Kate Campbell of HGTV, and she had her uh, Mom's Top Tools Must Haves for Mother's Day Toolkit. And then we came across this uh, 50 must-have tools for all homeowners and the infographic is on the Home Discovery Show Facebook page. So I wanted to ask you, Steve, being a contractor uh, and also somebody who lives in a home with a family, was there anything that wasn't on Kate's list that was on this 50 list that you think we should add to that kit? There's there's one that I use
1: regularly, or two of them I use regularly. Uh, I've got three. One of them is a, a T-bevel or a sliding T-bevel. And that one's really handy if you want to copy angles of things uh, so essentially what it is it looks like a knife and it pivots with a thumb screw on it so you can copy an angle you can lay it up against a, uh, a piece of molding or anything that you have on there and you can get the same molding to go to your saw and, and, and duplicate that size uh, that angle of the molding the other one is an awl um, I use that one constantly it's it's frustrating to try to drill a hole in the center of a door hinge for example in the, in the drill bit wanders off. So it's nice to be able to get a good starter hole in there and an all is simply, um, looks like a screwdriver with a pointed end on it, like an ice pick. Spell it. A-W-L. 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 No, it's I-T. Uh, uh, <laughs> and what, the, the last one is nail sets. Okay. Uh, nail sets, they're usually about three different sizes of them, depending on the, the size of the nail you're setting in. For moldings? For like moldings, that? exactly. Okay. Exactly. And so you can imagine you're, you're nailing on your moldings, you're on your door casing and you want to have to get that nail just below the surface so you can put your filler on top of it. It's nice to have the right size of nail set to um, uh, to sink it back in into the side of the wood there so you don't have to worry about seeing the nail. Moldings is a, a project that just about
0: anybody can do.
1: Right, exactly. And all three of these you'll use uh, in the door, for example, all three of these tools.
0: Okay. So, uh, and I just wanted to, to touch on this molding thing because it's not something to be afraid of. This is actually pretty easy to do, is it not?
1: It is. Some some very simple What could go wrong? Uh, you cut the piece too short.
0: Yeah. That's it. And then there's that expense and having to go yeah. and get more. But otherwise, it's pretty easy to do. Pretty straightforward. What if Absolutely. you want to get elaborate? Because moldings are, are, this is can really dress up a place. Oh, certainly. I
1: mean, we're talking traditionally, there's three pieces of molding that go around a door, a header and two sides. And they're cut at a 45 degree angle and meet at the top. Other moldings you can get into plinth blocks and rosettes. So you're dealing with a large or larger piece at the bottom of the door, and then you have a piece of molding sitting on top of it, and it goes up to the top corner where there's another piece So you're getting into, uh, six or seven pieces to make up the surrounding door frame and and get into crown moldings, of course, and chair rail and wainscot and all these really ornate moldings you can get into, and layer them if you want to as well. Put a baseboard in front of a baseboard, get a thicker one and a bit
0: greater detail. You know it's garage sale season. Mm-hmm. What do you think about used tools? I'm told that garage sales is a, a great place to collect tools and have what you need for when you need it uh, at, at a much reduced price.
1: Absolutely, I, I've. All the garage sales I've ever had and all the ones I've ever been to, notwithstanding I'm in the biz, the first thing that goes and the first thing that's asked for are the tools. So imagine you're putting together a little suite, a basement suite, you're just trying to tart something up, whatever. You can go rent a tool, but check out the garage sales and see maybe someone's got one that is not the best looking one. But it'll work, and you'll get it for, for next to nothing. Take care of your project and put it in your own shed. Sell it again if you want to. Are we talking hand tools or are we talking power tools? All the above. Um, most people don't get rid of hand tools when they're done. They'll maybe want to rent a power tool because we consider the cost of them. Uh, so a hand tool, if you're going to go to Gradstone and you want that extra hammer, you want a different handsaw, you want to... Any of those tools, garden tools, woodworking tools, metal tools, uh, mechanics tools are, are great ones. Somebody's
0: always wanted to get rid of a floor jack, and they're great to have around. If you go on Craigslist or sites like that, they have a ton of power tools. I mean, table saws galore. Yes. You choose it. Whatever you want, is there on Craigslist. How do you know if that... You know, a power tool has all kinds of things going on. How do you know if it's okay? Well,
1: the, the hopefully the best thing you can do is rely on the honesty of the seller. Uh, certainly, if you have any any idea of the tools and how they work and the safety of them, you can get a good idea. But if you're not sure about them, uh, you, you really are taking a chance with anything you buy uh, online or as used, anyways. If when in doubt, have somebody have a look at it and just say, "Well, does it? Is this okay?" But understand, you're all buying a used something, and there's a
0: certain amount of risk involved with that. Anything else on that list of fifty that you, you think that we should add to the to the toolkit?
1: Well, I see that there's a, there's a four foot level. Um, I like a little torpedo level. It can be a little nine inch one. It goes in the tool bag. Great for hanging pictures or even uh, making sure your handles are are plumb up and down. If you've got large handles, you're putting on a kitchen cabinet. You can also get a two foot or an eighteen inch level. So you may get more than one kind of size of level. We're keeping
0: the toolbox full. 50 tools every homeowner must have. This is the addendum to the top tools every mom must have in her toolbox that we did last weekend for Mother's Day. We'll take this break, and uh, then we're going to talk about Passive House. We've assembled a panel, and I think you'll like what they have to say on the Home Discovery Show from News Talk 980 CKNW. Ian Power back with Steve Seaborn, the little contractor. The concept of Passive House started in the late 1980s with uh, collaborative work in Sweden and Germany. The aim was to come up with a set of standards for energy efficiency in a building, reducing its ecological footprint through ultra-low energy usage, particularly popular in Germany, Scandinavian countries, and growing in other parts of Europe, and perhaps finally now gaining more attention in North America. The goal, at least in part, is to make safer buildings that are healthier and more accessible not to mention the reduction in homes carbon footprint and the reduction in waste to the landfill through building and retrofitting to talk more about this and to understand the concept of passive house and how it's uh, taking hold locally we called sean pander he's the green building program manager for the city of vancouver rob bernhardt is the president of the canadian passive house institute he's based in victoria and Lucio Picciano is a registered architect who brings a world of experience, literally, to his contemporary designs in high energy efficiency standards. Good morning to all three of you. Good
2: morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning, Ian.
0: Let's start with you, uh, Rob, if we could, uh, to give us the, uh, the basics, uh, the, the simple understanding, if you could, some kind of an explanation of what we're talking about when we say passive house.
2: In a a passive house is a building that is designed to offer superior comfort, uh, superior indoor air quality, all while operating on a very low energy budget. So the the key element is designing a very high-quality building envelope through increased levels of insulation, incredibly good uh, windows, and also ensuring that the design itself doesn't permit Any cold spots, we call them thermal bridges, but the areas where the cold can come through the envelope into the interior surfaces so that the interior of the building offers a a completely warm environment. There shouldn't be any cold feet or cold corners, nowhere on the inside surface where condensation can form or that the wall that's cold enough for condensation to form, even on the inside of the windows.
0: Where does Passive House differ from other forms of energy efficiencies? Well, it's a single-minded
2: focus on efficiency, and as far as I'm aware, it's the standard that offers the highest level of building energy efficiency.
0: Okay. And is this something that's easily obtained? Do you have to have some special skill set for it?
2: Well, you've got uh, people such as Lucio who are able to offer that uh, service locally, and there's a wide variety of building designers, uh, architects, engineers, and unregistered de- designers
0: who are able to do that, who have the expertise. Okay, fair enough. Well, let's move over to Lucio Picciano, if we could, for a moment. And and I would ask you to talk about the experience of living in a passive house, uh, as it might differ to any other kind of energy efficiency programs that are out there or designs. At what level is the quality and comfort of these homes? And, and are they suitable for our area here, climate wise and other.
3: Yes. Um, well, I think, uh, first of all, Rob summed things up um, very nicely. And uh, if I could add, um, for me, the best way to, um, to explain this to, to lay people or people I talk to every day is uh, you wouldn't drive around with a car with a leaky tank. You wouldn't walk around with a water bottle that leaked water. So, why do we put up with buildings that leak heat? Mm-hmm. When they leak heat, they're not as comfortable we spend a lot more money on uh, heating them and cooling them and passive house um, design seeks to mitigate all that Uh, as somebody who's uh, lived in one now for several months I can attest to uh, especially the indoor air quality and comfort it it really does work and the the reason that we're able to uh, uh, do this is the passive house model actually scientifically quantifies um, these uh, these features of a house. So there's no more guesswork. It's punched into the model, and we were able to determine our our uh, uh, energy usage uh, if our design meets this standard, and I can tell you that it does work because we're very happy in our house right now.
0: You talk about air quality, yes, and, and you can say that the air quality is better, but... But describe that. How, what is the difference that you notice?
3: Well, the big thing is we have uh, a consistent temperature at every part of the house, and, and this goes right down to the square inch. So you can put a thermometer on the north side, top corner of your bedroom, and the bottom uh, south side room, and you'll have a temperature variation that is very close, within a degree or so. Uh, further to that, because of an HRV, will have uh, very fresh air continually circulating through the house that uh, uh, reuses the heat before it exhausts it. Another way to to test for the indoor air quality is we can put a CO2 monitor in the house and we can compare the the parts per million indoor versus outdoor. And I've done that and I keep monitoring that and we we just continue day after day to have very optimal indoor air quality. And you can feel that when you're breathing, uh, when you're sleeping, everything. It's just, it's very noticeable.
0: Well, let's talk about that and, and we'll, we'll move on to Sean in a moment. But uh, I want to get to the comfort level. The comfort is the, the thing uh, most people will identify with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I understand when you talk about an even temperature throughout the house, because that's often a problem with drafty older buildings yep. where you don't get that. That's a comfort feature that that I can relate to. Air quality is something else that most people, if you tell them you will breathe easier at night, most people understand that. But but how do we quantify some of the other advantages in terms of actual feeling uh, the way you live?
3: Well, there's uh, another important issue that um, is coming to the forefront in recent years, and that's overheating. Uh, If you talked about overheating 15, 20 years ago in a city like Vancouver, it probably wouldn't get a lot of attention. But we're actually in our designs today, we're, we're focusing more on that because as we see in April, uh, I have a, a solar meter on my house. We've generated as much solar gain in April as we did last July. So that's really atypical. I know when we're, we're in an El Nino year, but year after year we're seeing higher uh, mean temperatures in our part of the country. So we also de- design towards not having this house overheat for more than 5% of the year, which is a, a huge comfort issue because nobody likes to sleep in a house that's 30 degrees or even 25 degrees. We want to keep the temperature at any day of the year below 25 degrees, and the passive house also does that. So it works in reverse for colder days and for hotter days.
0: Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about, more about that uh... Uh, but I want to move to Sean Pander, uh, Green Building Program Manager with the City of Vancouver. And what is the, the city's interest or even what is the city's role in Passive House, Sean?
4: Well, Ian, uh, when Council adopted a strategy last fall to have all energy in Vancouver come only from renewable sources by 2050, one of the first and immediate actions was to ask uh, uh Staff to generate a plan on how we could require new construction to have no greenhouse gas emissions and use only renewable energy by 2030 or sooner. And when we started to look at well, where do greenhouse gas emissions come from in a house? It's you know it all relates to heating uh, and and making hot water. And so we started to look at standards around the world that we could learn from and we could reference as uh, as a tool to help uh, transition our industry towards these super energy efficient zero emission hundred percent renewable buildings and uh, and for us that given you know the focus is on the envelope and reducing the energy use, what we've been learning in our work with our various partners is uh, other approaches to energy efficiency that require very complicated mechanical systems. Don't work well, especially in a residential setting. When um, you know homeowners, they they just they're not rocket scientists, right? They they have other jobs
0: to <laughs> Wait a minute, <laughs> <laughs>
4: and you know, and, and 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 the simplicity of that way of conserving energy that's not dependent on you know digital controls and, and very complicated systems.
0: Ah, you've hit on you've hit on something there. Can I ask you three to to wait for uh, for a moment? Yes. Good. We have to take a break. Uh, That's what we do here, and uh, we'll get caught up at the news desk as well. We're talking to Sean Pander. He is the Green Building Program Manager with the City of Vancouver. Lucio Picciano is a registered architect who works and now lives in a Passive House. And Rob Bernhardt, President of the Canadian Passive House Institute. He's in Victoria, and we'll be back in a moment. We're talking about Passive House. On the Home Discovery Show from News Talk 980 CKNW. Ian Power is back on uh, the Home Discovery Show with Steve Seaborn, the little contractor. We're talking about Passive House. Rob Bernhardt is the president of the Canadian Passive House Institute, he's in Victoria. Lucio Picciano is a registered architect who not only uh, works with the design and the energy efficiencies, but is also living in a passive house. And Sean Pander, who helped to convene this panel, is uh, with the City of Vancouver. He's the Green Building Program Manager. And uh, I always like talking to Sean because he's informative and uh, very enthusiastic about these things. But I want to move back to to Rob Bernhardt. Is uh, passive house uh, by design, is it something that you can retrofit or is it only for a new build?
2: Absolutely, Ian. Uh, Retrofits are part of it. Uh, They need to be part of any real green building strategy. And often uh, because uh, transforming a building from a a leaky, uncomfortable older building to one offering modern levels of comfort isn't a matter of just uh, a few little touch-ups or swapping out appliances. It's really a matter of uh, taking a close look at the building. And upgrading the building envelope first and foremost, retrofitting in a very high-quality ventilation system, and that sort of thing. So it's uh, it's quite a lot of work, and it's something that is done um, rarely in the life cycle of a building. It's not not like replacing an appliance that's done frequently. The approach has to be
0: holistic.
2: Exactly. So we tend to look for opportunities within the life cycle of the building to do that, and it can be done in a staged format. If you begin with a plan and then replace the windows as they need replacing or upgrade the insulation, that type of thing. So it's not necessary to do it all at once.
0: What are the financial implications of Uh, this passive house design, either in a new build or in a retrofit situation. Uh, Is it more expensive to go this route than some other forms of energy efficiencies?
2: Our experience in North America in terms of retrofits is quite limited still, but with the new builds, what we're seeing time and again is that there's a small incremental cost in design and construction in the range of a few percentage points. And um, because there is a need to be more careful with the design in particular, and then the construction as well needs to be properly done and using very high quality uh, components and materials. But um, the cost for the owner, if you take that incremental cost and add it to the mortgage, for example, the owner is better off in the first month because the operating costs go down by more than the mortgage goes up. So for it, on any sort of life cycle cost analysis of owning a building. Uh, it is the it is the most affordable option.
0: Interesting. So you have to look at the big picture to see the value and the offset of the, the operating cost. Yes. Okay. It's
2: not just energy that's saved. These are, as Sean was saying, these are simple buildings. There isn't a lot of complicated mechanical equipment in there that needs constant maintenance or replacement and that type of right. thing. It's the envelope itself that's doing the work to keep it cool in the summer and warm in the winter.
0: Well, that's what I wanted to, to move to, Luciano Picciano, a registered architect. And, and the question I have for you is, is what role does the environment or, or the weather, more precisely, play in passive house design?
2: Right. It's, well, this
3: really is the key because when we think about passive design, it's very uh, contextually oriented. Each design must respond to its exact uh, geographic location so if we're designing a passive house in Vancouver it's going to look a lot different than one say in Arizona or uh, even in the Midwest uh, or, or in some of the Arctic climates so this is where a designer uh, becomes very important to know how to uh, design for orientation overhangs where the uh, major openings will go uh, area to volume ratio of the house etc.
0: Mm-hmm and do you use things like Environment Canada's uh, data to, to help or assist in the design?
3: Yes, and so when we when we start a design, we'll generally um, couple that with inputs into the passive house model, which is uh, climatic data for your exact location, uh, things like wall areas, uh, window uh, areas, uh, components such as HRV. So we're looking at this model in conjunction uh, with design. And we want to hit some targets for verification which are heat demand, air tightness and energy consumption. So we can play with with, uh, with uh, the design that way and know if it's working or not.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to ask you how this, if it does at all, play into the, the EnerGuide system?
3: <clears throat> well, it's a, it's a different system and, and frankly I'm not an expert uh, on EnerGuide so I wouldn't be too comfortable uh, commenting on that except to say that uh, when your house does go through an EnerGuide um, uh, evaluation, uh, you can be sure that it's not taking into account as specifically and scientifically each component of the house. So you could still have a very high EnerGuide rated house, but you could... Be leaking severely heat and mm-hmm. you could be overheating severely in the uh, in the summer
0: so when it comes right down to it and I think we touched on this with with Rob that it simply when it comes to passive house it's kind of an all-or- nothing situation
3: well it, it you could say that but it, it I mean there are there are many passive like designed houses um, which take this approach into account for design but I think, uh, and you know, if I may uh, assume what the rest of my panel thinks, I think we all believe that being passive certified is very important because we want to be able to give the public, the client, whoever is living in this house, uh, reassurance that it has been designed properly to meet these standards. If we don't meet these standards, we can't uh, in good conscience say, your house achieved this. So that's why the Passive House certification is a very important step in the whole process.
0: Okay, Sean Pander, what is this step? uh, What does it represent in our movement towards a, a greener city?
4: As I was indicating earlier, uh, because most greenhouse gas emissions come from the use or the need for heat in, in a building and in particular residential buildings, getting that demand the, the demand for heat energy down to a, a, a really down to a minimum through this intelligent design and this this quality approach means that we can have very simple renewable energy systems that 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 can provide that heat energy. Um, I think in addition to that, uh, part of our Renewable City strategy is also a lot of it's about how do we really keep the benefits local as much as possible and and that's another reason that uh, we're quite interested in in seeing builders move towards passive house construction is because the, the value the added value that Rob talked about that goes into the buildings, uh, most of that is is locally sourced it's 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 skilled labor uh, you know you've got your architects you've got your tradespeople on site that uh, it you know it requires extra attention by those folks um, it uh, the focus on insulation and Windows. Those are those are also very locally provided um, uh, supplies, part uh, of part of the, part of the um, supply chain. So instead of you know sourcing. Um you know this this fancy technology from Japan or China or, or Korea or, or wherever it's coming from. A lot of what you're investing in is, is is local, locally made and 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 locally built.
0: What's the profile of the early adopter, and and how many people will we need to to be living in passive houses? Let's say even in Vancouver to to make to have that impact.
4: Well, um, I think what we're seeing is it's interesting. Our, our first uh, uh, our, our first sort of big adopter of it is is actually a A construction company here in Vancouver, and um, you know they're building a a 60-unit residential passive house uh, just on the east side of Vancouver right now. And and when I when I speak with the owner of that company, he didn't actually get into it for environmental reasons. He's just like, "This really makes sense. This is the we've been headed this way in how we." you know, improve the quality of our buildings for a long time. And when we got introduced to this concept of passive houses, sort of the rigorous, like, let's take this to the next step, they started to work the numbers, and, and uh, they found, wow, this is, this is a way we can provide a better building uh, and actually make more money doing so. So uh, some of the biggest early adopters are some of these savvy businessmen who are looking at this as a, as a big opportunity.
0: Interesting you should say that, because... Uh I don't know much about the science. Uh, The little that I do know, it does make an awful lot of sense. It it makes so much sense that I would like to see a business model for it, and that's something that we'll leave for another time. And I do want to talk about this this topic and and others as we move towards a a greener city in Vancouver as, as time goes by. But for now... Uh, With my thanks, I'll say so long to Rob Bernhardt. Uh, Appreciate your time today. He's the president of the Canadian Passive House Institute. He's in Victoria. Uh, We also spoke with Lucio Picciano, uh, who is an architect, and Sean Pander, who is the manager of green building uh, or the green building program manager for the city of Vancouver. Uh, Any one of you, uh, if somebody wanted some more information, where's a good resource for Passive House?
3: Well, um, this is Lucho. Um Rob, uh, uh, Mr. Bernhard at uh, Passive House Canada is an excellent uh, source of information. You could uh, look at look up the website. Uh, Rob, I'll let you uh, um, uh, tell them what the website is. Uh, my company is DLP Architecture. We can also be reached online, uh, and uh, we'll offer any information uh, that anyone wants on that. Um, and I'd just like to say thank you for the opportunity and. Um, I hope that we're able to discuss more of Passive
2: House in the future with you. Mr. Powers, thank you very much.
0: It was my pleasure. Rob, do uh, you have a quick contact for us?
2: Yes, Ian, thank you. The uh, website for the Canadian Passive House Institute West is just canphi.ca. That's c-a-n-p-h-i.ca.
0: Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been a lot of fun talking about Passive House, and as I say, we'll do more on this on the Home Discovery Show, back in a moment on News Talk 980 CKNW. Nice to have you with us. Thanks for sharing your Sunday morning with the Home Discovery Show. I'm Ian Power, Steve Seaborn. The little contractor is with me, as always, and uh, that was an interesting conversation about Passive House. It's not that difficult to understand, although there's a fair amount of science that goes into it, but I would suggest that this is something that maybe many years ago would not have been possible if not for the technology that we have today. Absolutely. Their, their computer modeling is what they're speaking of.
1: And the amount of information that can be stored, accessed, and utilized within the computer is, is it's unfathomable. And, and to be able to take all of that science
0: and put that as part of the building
1: plan, the architecture, is, is incredible. It, it's a great step forward.
0: We've talked a lot about these guide energy evaluations on the Home Discovery Show. We've talked to Glenis Verholst over at City Green Solutions. And uh, I, I see one of the, from my perspective, the big differences between what is happening on the one side is where it's component by component which seems a little more attractive from an affordability issue. So in other words, if you're just doing your windows because you've got leaky windows, you can set aside that as a project and you budget for it accordingly. Whereas it seems to me that with Passive House, you have to have a more holistic approach. You can't just do the windows. You've mm-hmm. got to do more. It's the, the entire envelope has to be considered, first and foremost, with Passive House, we're talking about the envelope, right? And, and then that everything else that goes with it. But I like the idea of having the air recycled as much as it is, and the comfort level. Because if you ever come to my place, which you have been, if you go from you can go from one room to the next, and it there's a huge difference. I live in an older house, and and it leaks, and, yes. and sometimes I don't mind that because it's kind of like the a little bit of that draft, getting that fresh air <laughs> in there. But it, it's expensive to operate when you've got that waste. We'll take a quick break right now, and I want to open up the phone. If you've got something that's going on at your place this weekend, put the little contractor to task, 604-280-9898, or star 9898, and we can take your call next on the Home Discovery Show from News Talk 980 CKNW. Ian Power with Steve Seaborn, the little contractor. Good morning to you, Robert.
2: Oh, hi. I uh, bought some quarter-inch plywood for a subfloor a year ago so recently I bought some a quarter inch subfloor again but it's like about a sixteenth of an inch less than the one I bought a year ago and I was going to put some sheet vinyl over it so I was thinking I was just going to get some floor patch and even it out what, what do you think? Um,
1: well we certainly can just be first thing to be aware of is to make sure that your floor patching is compatible with your uh, flooring you're going to put down some of them Uh, will not be compatible. You cannot use um, gypsum-based ones on some products, and so you'll end up with a concrete-based. It'll be a bit of a work that's on there, but you could certainly do it.
2: Okay, I was wondering, so when the pore patch um, hardens, what if it has a sandy texture to it?
1: Um, again, check with the with your final flooring manufacturer's recommendations. But if it's got a bit of a sandy finish to it, it might mean that the your, your trowel you're using to glue down your new floor has got a a little higher peak on. It might be using a V-notch trowel, for example, uh, or there or it's it's absorbed in with the under pad of the of the actual flooring itself.
2: Do you, you think it might affect the, the sheet vinyl, the, that funny sandy
1: texture? Well, if, if it's too much and it's uh, you have what's called a perimeter glue sheet vinyl just on the outsides, it will move around. It could abrade it. Um, but again, it, my, my default always is check with the manufacturer as to what kind of floor leveling compound they would recommend for their products.
2: Right. Okay. Thank you. Thank
0: you, Robert. Good, uh, good call. Good question. Uh, this came to the Home Discovery Show Facebook page. How long do I have to wait after pressure washing my wood deck to restain it?
1: Wait until the surface water is gone. You can wait a couple of days if you've got good sunny weather but it, uh, it just depends on how much you're driving it into so a couple of days at the best and then using a stain rather than a paint right and, that, and they
0: did say about staining they want oh, to yeah. restain right uh, is, are there some are all stains created equal
1: um, you really do get what you pay for looking you're looking for wearability application reapplication and you're looking for uh, what's needed for maintenance of that stain
0: more maintenance, obviously, on a wood deck than a composite deck. Is the difference of money for a composite deck, which I'm told is what about a third more, is is it worth it? Um, you know, a
1: lot of people are saying that it is, just because the wood we're getting nowadays, they just they're not making trees like they used to apparently. So the composite decks have come down in price. The materials, uh, the installation is is fairly quick and you can get out and enjoy it right away. Right. So what is the maintenance on a composite deck? Just wash and wear? Wash and wear. It's a deck brush, a little bit of uh, mild detergent. Um,
0: they don't need a whole lot. You probably don't even have to go out with a power washer. Yeah. And, and what about the look and the feel? Some people will say, well, you know, wood is wood. It's in my backyard. I want that feel. I want that that rustic feeling. I want that outdoors feeling. This this composite, uh, composite stuff, while well, it's, you know, durable and all that, and, and does it look okay? It, it does. there, manufacturers now are coming up with
1: wood grain looks and different colors and they actually do look like the uh, the rainforest woods were not they're not looking like a cedar deck but you're getting you know maybe you want a Brazilian cherry and it does look like that and, and it does look very good in your in most environments that we've done them in
0: they do fit Now that would be for horizontal surfaces. I recall Paul LaFrance France telling us that he would still use pressure te- uh, t- uh, pressure treated posts That's
1: right for anything that's touching the ground or near contact with the ground should be pressure treated the superstructure the support columns support beams. And anything that is uh, above that deck area, for example, an arbor or a trellis, or even handrail, you could go with a with a cedar if you wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Is it paintable composite materials? Some say you can. It's certainly not recommended because it does add another layer, like painting vinyl siding. Well, you can do it. It does
0: affect the the movement of it and how it absorbs and dissipates weather. If you're building a, a deck in the back of the little contractor's house. Is it going to be wood? Is it going to be composite What, what will it be made of uh, i w- I would like to go with the composite just simply because I'm familiar with
1: it and and I would take that investment at the upstart there for the additional cost to be able to enjoy it
0: later on uh, last question about this is mm-hmm. is it cuttable or is sizable? How do you size composite materials
1: well it's 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 based on the uh, the width boards that are already set most of them have a, a um, fasteners on them you don't have to face nail them you can cut them like a normal everyday wood some of them you can even shape on the edges. It really depends on the manufacturer. There's lots
0: out there. Some are hollow, some are solid, but it just essentially cuts the same as wood. Okay, fair enough. Amila Bamji and Matt Hyland are technical producers today. Be sure to have a look at the Home Discovery Show Facebook page and stay with us for Vancouver Consumer. That's coming up next. For Steve Seaborn, I'm Ian Power on the Home Discovery Show from News Talk 980 CKNW.